You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. On today's episode, we'll listen into a conversation Tom recently had with Gene Kearns, Vice President and Chief Academic Officer at Renaissance Learning. Gene recently published Unlocking Student Talent, The New Science of Developing Expertise, a book based on the growing body of evidence around purposeful practice and implications for K-12 education. We'll include a link to the book in the show notes and on the blog. The book is made up of three main sections. The first section dives into student engagement. The second recommends how deliberate practices can be incorporated into general education. And the third covers developing independent learners. Throughout today's episode, Jean and Tom discuss the book, Coaching for Excellence, and what we can learn about voice and choice. It's shown that students will tend to do what's easier rather than most valuable and what's most important. And coaches differentiate between what to learn and how to learn and nudge students towards doing the best thing, not the easiest thing. Let's listen in. All right, Gene Kearns, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Good morning, thank you. Gene, it's such a treat to have you on the podcast. It's been a couple of years since we did a session together at Google. Yeah, a few years back there. Mm-hmm. You're the chief academic officer at uh, at Renaissance Learning, but before we get to that, uh, you come from a family of educators and and are an educator yourself. Where did uh, where did you start teaching? Yeah, uh, we like to joke that it's uh, in our blood and around the dinner table because at one time we had four of us in the same district, uh, 20 plus years uh, teaching administrative work, uh, fairly evenly divided between uh, Virginia uh, and then Delaware uh, before coming on board here. Uh, Gene, you did your PhD at Delaware. What was uh, the focus of your studies? Yeah, the focus of my studies at Delaware was uh, educational leadership uh, was the nature of the degree. Uh, And so I was really looking at uh, the uses of assessment, pedagogical uh, approaches. And and then I think the hardest thing for leaders is uh, how do you institute changes that actually uh, make their way into the culture uh, of an organization? Uh, and how did you, after be, uh, you were uh, a district uh, a curriculum director, how did you become chief academic officer at Renaissance? Well, uh, it really relates back, Tom, to that previous question about the degree, because a lot of the work that I did uh, on my dissertation re- revolved around the use of Renaissance learning products uh, in our district. Uh, so as a result, I became a uh, known commodity, if you will, uh, with Renaissance, served on an advisory board, uh, did some content development work for them, uh, actually uh, mentioned uh, Renaissance in, uh, obviously extensively in the dissertation, but even in the the Ford, uh, because they were very supportive. The the companies had a long history of uh, supporting research and exploration. Uh, And so uh, it was a very natural transition. I didn't see the job opportunity coming. I sort of, you know, wanted to do the superintendent, assistant superintendent thing, but uh, Renaissance approached me and and said, would you be interested in coming to work for us? And it was a sort of a different uh, career path, but I came on board. Um, at the time uh, that I came aboard, which was just over almost 12 years ago to the day, uh, the company was very much known for uh, practice products, Accelerated Reader, the original product, uh, followed uh, closely by Accelerated Math. Uh, but what's been very exciting over the last Last 12 years is to see the uh, emergence of our uh, assessment product line uh, and 
the result being that Renaissance Now is very much known for learning analytics. We have tremendous amounts of information about uh, how kids do when they perform on assessments and then drill that down into uh, what are kids doing daily uh, with reading and mathematics. Uh, so uh, sort of a transition there from a very practice focused company to one that's broader into assessment and now learning analytics uh, as a broader topic. It's interesting that you mentioned um, Accelerated Reader. When I was a school superintendent in the 90s, I think we had AR in, in all of our schools. And in, in some respects, sort of pre-smartphone, that was the beginning of introducing the quantified self to, uh, to education, right? It, uh, it, it helped kids track reading. And for those that enjoyed competition, uh, it introduced a, a, an element of competition, but it my observation, it definitely made kids um, read more and with, uh, with more purpose, with more intention. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, was the outcome. And, and honestly, uh, when the career opportunity came to work with Renaissance, um, again, I wasn't looking uh, for that opportunity. I was superintendent, assistant superintendent type of thing. Uh, but we'd had so much success uh, with Renaissance products that I had to at least uh, entertain the offer. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned AR, Tom, to contextualize it for us all. Uh, that product was released in 1986. Uh, and I was reflecting the other day on what other piece of software uh, were we using in 1986 uh, right. that we can use today. And, you know, I mean, WordPerfect and WordStar were our word processors and, you know, Lotus 123 was our spreadsheet and, you know, browsers just didn't, I mean, they weren't even existing. So uh, I think that speaks to the staying power uh, of that product that it's clearly doing something that is very fundamental and very impactful with schools. Well, and it's interesting that you talked about uh, uh, practice-based products. In, in fact, that's the focus of your new book, Unlocking Student Talent, The New Science of Developing Expertise. Yes. Uh, like many people, uh, I've been tracking this subject since reading Outliers back in 2011, and mm-hmm. Malcolm Gladwell popularized the, the yeah, 10,000 brought it to world, scale. Kind of, a, mm-hmm. kind of a simplification of Erickson's work. Um, was Accelerated Reader for you the beginning of this interest in deliberate practice or uh, was it the, the popular literature? Yeah, I wouldn't say that AR created a fertile ground in which the the popular literature could really explode. It wasn't uh, Outliers wasn't the first work for me. Uh, it was the ta- uh, the Talent Code uh, by Dan Coyle, uh, and uh, I, I honestly I picked up that book in an airport uh, on the way to a uh, to a meeting for the company senior leadership, uh, and uh, there are folks that will still rib me about that meeting because I was so excited about the book uh, because you know Renaissance from its beginning talked about practice. Uh, and then we talked about how do you make it the most effective uh, for kids in both reading and mathematics. Uh, and so uh, one of our CEOs uh, a couple times back, he said, um, if someone were to have written a book about what we do, this is probably as close as, as it would get. So, uh, you know, coming from a background of uh, thinking about practice, I think I was uh, well primed to respond to a work uh, on practice. And again, it was the talent code by Dan Coyle, which then, you know, uh, created a, a desire to read other areas or, or you know, so outliers uh, was certainly in the mix. Uh, talent is overrated by Jeff Colvin, uh, bounced by Matthew Syed. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, a strong collection of works in, in that vein out there, but but it all started with a talent code. 
and so we know with uh, with this growing body of evidence that um, well, there's a literature around developing expertise and the importance of um, it's not just practice that makes you better. It's it's purposeful practice, yeah. but it's surprisingly uh, no one that I know of had, had really systematically tried to apply this body of research to uh, to education until your book. Yeah, that was that was primarily our goal. Um, you know, I mentioned some of the titles. For example, "Talent is Overrated" uh, was uh, Colvin's attempt to apply it to business. Uh, outliers and Talent Code were were broadly they weren't uh, domain specific, if you will. Uh, and I, I was always uh, interested in saying, let's have this dialogue about what this research means for K twelve um, and. Uh, Really appreciate it. Early on, we had Dan Coyle do some some keynotes for us and actually approached him with the idea, but he sort of moved on to some other areas of study. I'm um, actually looking forward to his new book coming out on company culture. Uh, but uh, more recently, uh, working with uh, Anders Ericsson uh, and Robert Poole, uh, you know, obviously you mentioned Ericsson, who to me is the, the father of all of the uh, deliberate practice research. Uh, and uh, he was very humble of saying, you know, I, I know deliberate practice, but I, I can't say that I know. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't have a background in, in pedagogy. I don't have a background in instruction. So, you know, while I am a teacher, that's not my area of expertise. So they were incredibly supportive to us uh, and actually willing to do the forward of the book. Right. You wrote uh, a, a beautiful forward. That's a great summary. It was wonderful. Yeah, we, we really appreciate their support. But yeah, that's that's exactly what we wanted to do is to bring this research uniquely uh, to K-12 applications. And with that... Um Erickson notes that almost all of the study of deliberate practice has been with highly motivated adults. So it's, uh, it's athletes that want to get better. Uh, it's musicians, but it's often people that are, have early expertise that are striving for higher levels of expertise. So motivation is not an issue with them. And you deal with that in the first third of the book. Uh, what did you learn about that uh, topic, writing the first third of Unlocking Student Talent? Yeah. Uh, and actually that uh, placing the motivation piece up front in the book was a decision that we sort of made as we were grappling with the content of saying uh, it really does have to start there. Uh, I think one thing we learned is uh, how much we don't know. Uh, obviously, you know, what motivates human beings is a deep, deep, deep uh, psychological uh, topic of exploration. Uh, so there's a lot yet that's unknown. But I would say there's two things that, that I find helpful. Uh, one, and this is sort of drawn from some ideas that Coyle began in the talent code of saying that when it comes to student motivation, uh, let's think of it as two types. Um, he uses the term ignition uh, where we talk about motivation, but he talks about uh, one type of ignition or motivation that is that explosion, that sort of that moment of witnessing a performance that inspires you and you decide that you have an interest there, uh, that maybe you would like to do that as well. It's a very sort of big bang explosive moment. Uh, in contrast, then, uh, is the other type of ignition or motivation, which is the 
slow, steady uh, stoking of the fire, uh, if you will. Uh, and so when we deal with motivation, we have to deal, uh, particularly looking at it through the lens of what would teachers need to know. How do we create those uh, opportunities for a student to be inspired to have that explosive moment? Uh, and then when they are inspired to study something and, and go deeper and work harder with it, how do we stoke the fire? Uh, which, you know, we, we deal with the three sections, motivation, uh, the unique qualities of deliberate practice and coaching. Uh, you know, you inevitably have to create them as sections uh, of a book, uh, but they're really three sides uh, to the same thing, if you will. Uh, so, you know, one way of looking at it is how do you structure practice so that it actually becomes engaging? And how do you coach students in way that engage them? Uh, so uh, it's it's all interrelated there, but uh, clearly it, it starts with that explosive moment and then transitions pretty quickly if you're going to take a student across time into how do you slowly stoke the fire uh, across the thousands of hours of practice, if you will, uh, necessary for a student to really achieve eminence in a field. So let's dive into the second part of the book that outlines the uh, the implications of deliberate practice for for education. Um, how would you summarize what you what you learned about uh, practice and its role in in uh, education? Yeah, uh, we should note that in the, the the general body of the literature out there, most folks are using the term deliberate practice. Uh, Coyle uh, chose to say deep practice, but essentially they're talking about the same thing. Uh, and I think the highest level uh, observation to make about it is that the deliberate practice uh, that is reflected by uh, the activities undertaken by world-class performers uh, tends to be starkly different from what most of us do uh, when we practice. Uh, in fact, uh, An Anders Ericsson and, and his author co-authors talk about the fact that often uh, when, when given choices to engage in practice activities, uh, people choose to engage in things that they are good at already, and it almost becomes a matter of entertainment for them. Uh, in contrast, that's, that's not at all uh, what the world-class experts do. They actually seek to engage with the weak parts of their performance. They analyze what they're doing and determine an area of weakness and then focus intently on that. Uh, therefore, deliberate practice is, is starkly different from what most of us do. Uh, but if we're willing to stretch ourselves and engage in those areas, uh, you know, Erickson makes the statement in uh, his most recent book that uh, deliberate practice is potentially the most uh, effective teaching tool we, we've ever uh, uncovered. Uh, if we can uh, figure it all out and then create dynamics where students are willing to practice deliberately. Yeah, I think this is such an important point, Gene. Um, there, we've seen in the last 24 months such a rise in the interest in voice and choice. And I think you and I both think that's uh, extremely important, but it doesn't mean unguided learning. No. Uh, because people are, as you noted, are have a default to doing easy things next. And what we this underscores the importance of coaching or, or mentoring advisors that help us do the best thing next, not necessarily the, the easiest thing next. And that this may be the most important difference between practice and deliberate practice, right? 
Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I think to your point about coaches who sometimes uh, look at you and say, here's what you need to do. You may not want to do this, but you need to. I'm I actually, uh, when you said that, I thought of an experience I had in uh, in graduate school. Uh, we were working on a class and, and my professor, we were, I had a project that I had implemented in the, in the schools and uh, there was backlash. People didn't want to do it. They found it difficult and I was convinced it was the right thing to do. And at the moment that I was overwhelmed by all the backlash, my professor said, said to me, you need to go and review or interview everyone that is resist- resisting. Uh, you need to understand uh, their concerns to build your plan to address those concerns. And I looked at her and I said, Barbara, that's the last thing I want to do. And her response was, yes, but it's exactly what you need to do. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're hitting this moment. You know, given choice, sometimes uh, we we engage with things that are uh, more entertaining to us, more fun. Uh, but sometimes we need a coach that that says, nope, nope, here's what you need to do. Uh, the, the dynamic of it then is, uh, you know, when we are uh, engaging in those things that we're sort of on the edge of our abilities, uh, as, as Erickson has said, deliberate practice in and of itself is not enjoyable. Uh, students, participants will not enjoy deliberate practice, the activity itself. However, if it is well-structured, uh, and if they can see themselves growing as a result of this activity, while they won't enjoy the activity, they will enjoy seeing themselves get better. Uh, and so, that, again, that's why I said these three sections of the book sort of interplay off one another uh, quite extensively. And it's a, a fairly nuanced conversation at points. Uh, but, yeah, right to your point, we, we can't let students choose uh, to not engage in things that are difficult to them. Sometimes we learn the most by uh, being uh, being asked to engage uh, with things on the edge of our abilities. Uh, but I, I do want to link this point back to the, uh, the discussion of motivation and what a complicated cocktail that is and how it's influenced by context, by relationships, by, uh, by purpose, and by uh, seeing your own growth, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a function uh, of all of these things. And... Um, I continue to think that a, a deeper understanding of each learner's uh, motivational profile will eventually prove uh, really key in, in personalized learning. Absolutely. I think you know, you know, the challenge uh, is the amount of time necessary to do that and how do we do those things to scale. But you know, to your point, too, about engaging in things that are difficult, we actually see the manifestation of some of this uh, you know, again, what Erickson was talking about, when, when learners can see themselves improving, uh, they're more willing to engage in things that are difficult to them. Uh, I think the mainstream manifestation of that is uh, devices like Fitbits. Uh, you know, the, the workout itself is, is grueling and maybe not all that engaging. Uh, but when we see the counters and the clicks and the ticks and the, and the goals, uh, Somehow it shifts, our motivation shifts, and we become more willing uh, to engage in those activities, which then, you know, in that sense, the, the Fitbit is acting as an uh, electronic coach to us that's kind of providing feedback and, and, and challenging us to go further. It is, Gene. I, I ran a couple extra miles this morning because I was using Strava than there you I go. would have done if, if I wasn't. There you go. Uh, the, the language in part two, where you describe the implications of Deliberate practices, uh, I found it striking and unusual for educators. You, for example, talked about 
um, helping teachers find the balance between drill versus scrimmage. Uh, yeah. To un- unpack that sports metaphor. Yeah. Uh, and actually, there are sports metaphors all throughout this, because despite the fact that we've separated the things cognitive and uh, and physical, uh, what a lot of this research tends to indicate is our brains uh, respond very much like muscles. Uh, the drill versus scrimmage uh, dichotomy that's there actually, uh, you know, drawn from work uh by Doug Lemoff. Uh, and first of all, I think that the key word there is balancing drill. In other words, drill, uh, focusing on a, a unique skill somewhat in isolation. Uh, the purpose of drilling is to uh, be able to intently focus on that one skill. Uh, it does distort reality a little bit because skills then become operationalized in the world. Uh, but one of the qualities of deliberate practice is when you're operating on the edge of your abilities, you need to be able to focus in on that one truly um, isolated activity so that you can uh, intend uh, focus on it. Uh, in contrast, scrimmage would be putting it all together. There's the uh, performance tasks, the exhibitions, the projects, those types of things. Um, and, and ultimately, I think it's about having balance between those two. Uh, Lemoff does point out or assert in his writings that uh, when we're learning things, uh, actually the most effective way to actually learn things is to drill them. Uh, you know, that's when we really acquire the skills. So um, John Wooden, the, the famous UCLA basketball coach, one of the things he used to remark when his uh, practice with his students uh, or, or sports participants in contrast with others was, he said, you know, I, I know that we we drill a lot more than they do. He said, but I'm convinced that it's the right thing to do. Uh, and actually what Lemoff says is it's about drill, drill, drill to learn things, uh, then put things together as a scrimmage. And the purpose of the scrimmage is to see um, how do students uh, put the skills together. Uh, and we observe the scrimmage for some period of time and then decide, oh, here's a new area of weakness we can focus on and go back to it. Uh, most recently, the pendulum stream has been appropriately concerned about uh, application and rigor and those types of things. But I don't think we want pendulum to swing so far that we get away from still devoting time in school to uh, practicing. And drills got negative connotations. I hope it'll be perceived positively. Uh, but, you know, drilling on particular key skills, which is necessary uh, right. to, to build a background. Uh, I, I think of it as personalized and project-based learning. The personalized learning often being accelerated and individualized uh, pathways where you're, you're building, reading, writing, and problem-solving skills for uh, application in inquiry and project-based learning, challenge-based learning. Um, these are on-ramps to uh, these scrimmages or exhibitions, mm-hmm. but both are, uh, are critical. And, and as you noted, it's how we, we balance these two interplay, these two balance, balance, balance. I, I, I it was interesting that you mentioned uh, the, the biology here, cause this is not just psychology. It is biology. Yeah. Uh, you talk about the magic of myelin. What is that? Well, uh, and of course, Coyle started this dialogue, but, you know, drawing from cognitive science, basically what he was pointing out is uh, when we practice particular skills, we're literally rewiring our brains. Uh, So, uh, you know, I I use a comparison sometimes. Many of us remember probably about third grade level uh, when we started to study multiplication facts. And some of those came pretty quickly to us. The fives and the tens weren't a whole lot of problem. And we handled the twos pretty well. But that run of learning 
playing the sixes and the sevens and the eights. That was pretty tough material. Uh, so at some point in your life, when someone said, what is six times seven to you, uh, you took a couple of seconds to formulate the answer and then offered up 42 uh, with some degree of hesitation, not completely sure that that was even the right answer. Uh, yet now as adults, and, and hopefully even by the time we made it to middle school, someone said six times seven and without any truly conscious thought, 42 came to mind. Uh, it, it's the same kind of manifestation of, uh, you know, some days we, we drive home and we pull into the driveway uh, on some levels, completely unaware how we got there because we were uh, operating our car and, and performing all those tasks and still thinking about other things. Uh, and, and that's in some ways is the magic of myelin that uh, after a while, those things which were very challenging to us, if we keep working on them, uh, become fluid, become almost unconscious, become things that that just happen. And 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 as we said, with, with driving, we could think about other things while we were doing it. So when we automate those skills, when we build that myelin, uh, it frees up the brain to be thinking about other things, uh, typically on, on a higher level uh, within the domain that you're operating in. I like the picture of uh, converting a dark alley to a, a lit superhighway. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. We're listening into a conversation with Tom and Gene Kearns around his new book, Unlocking Student Talent, The New Science of Developing Expertise. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss any future episodes. We've got three seasons of great episodes and content featuring leaders from the space that cover a variety of topics around innovations and learning. Okay, let's get back to Tom and Gene. Um, you have a chapter that discusses resistance and results, and in that chapter you describe reachfulness, mm -hmm. a, a term that will be new to most people. What is that? Yeah, uh, well, in that chapter, we are around resistance and results. You know, one is, uh, you know, the element of resistance. You've got to be practicing on the edge of your abilities to grow optimally. Uh, and then, as I've alluded to before, the results are necessary because the practice is going to be relatively grueling. Uh, the reachfulness aspect, though, I think that's the desired end. How do we create uh, dynamics where students are making conscious decisions to be willing to reach and try uh, and operate uh, through choice on the edge of their abilities. Um, I think that's where a lot of this uh, research really comes to life because uh, Carol Dweck uh, at Stanford uh, did some studies where, you know, kids were taught a program that she referred to as brainology, uh, which is basically a lot of this practice uh, and expertise research, you know, teaching kids that your brain is very much like a muscle, uh, that when something's new, it's going to be hard. But if you continue to persevere every time you repeat something, uh, it gets a little bit easier. You're building new connections. And what she found was that in a very short period of time, uh, kids became more willing to uh, to persevere and to embrace challenges. Um, Rick Stiggins, uh, the noted assessment experts, also talked about, you know, how do we do things with kids in the name of assessment and within information uh, that creates confidence, uh, creates optimism and hope, uh, and ultimately uh, makes it safe uh, to 
try something new to operate on the edge. Uh, so I think that's where a lot of this really comes to life is, you know, the, the classical view of intelligence was, uh, you know, it's something you were born with or not. You had skill in the area. We talked about uh, people as being naturals born to be whatever it is that they were studying. Um, and all of that is is completely invalidated by this research, which says, no, um, there's only a small portion of this that we could even begin to explain uh, genetically or being born with it. Uh, the majority of it is how hard are you willing to work? Uh, what type of environment were you in that motivated you? Uh, and uh, what about the folks who you encountered along the way who served as your teachers, your mentors, and your coaches? That explains far more of it uh, than anything any of us might have been born with. Why is recovery important? Yeah, there was a, a section uh, there about recovery, and, and, and this is one that's uh, kind of on the edge a little bit for schools. But um, what what has been found through the research of world class performers is, um, despite many stories of you know here's someone who practices eight to ten hours a day, uh, if it's a physical activity, you know like uh, Michael Phelps say trimming for swimming, the hours do get longer. But for many 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 other activities, uh, the amount of deliberate practice that those folks are engaging with with daily tends to run in more of the two to four hour and absolute maximum. Uh, and uh, if they're breaking more than an hour and a half, uh, it's going to be divided across multiple sessions. Uh, so this idea of school could not be turned into eight hours of deliberate practice uh, because nobody could endure that much. Uh, so it's, it's that idea of sometimes we need the ability as learners to walk away uh, from what we're, we're struggling with. We, we need that, rep uh, that reflective processing time. Uh, it's that dynamic that we often have, uh, of adults when we're uh, struggling with a problem and we, you know, sort of literally wake up in the middle of the night with the answer, or it comes to us in the shower in the morning, uh, because our mind has been subconsciously sort of processing things. So, you know, we, we can engage for deliberate practice for a maximum amount of time. Uh, and then what some of the most effective coaches, and, and I use coaches meaning both uh, cognitive and physical, what some of the most effective coaches will say is, you know, when you are not practicing within the zone, when you are not practicing deliberately, it's probably best that you walk away from the activity. Uh, because then you're you're probably practicing things right. incorrectly. So we can we can only you know take up so much of it. Uh, Dan Fink has a new book coming out in a couple of weeks called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, and he discusses the uh, the need for breaks, uh, just as mm -hmm. you did. Let, yeah. Let's uh, walk through the recommendations, elementary to high school, and try to paint pictures of what this means. So at the elementary level, what if we visit an elementary school that was smart about the use of deliberate practice, what would we see? Yeah, I think there's, you know, uh, there's elements of this that uh, are universal and cut through all the levels. And I think one of the core messages is at, at all content levels, understand what the basics are of the domain or subject that you were teaching, and then make sure that they are done well. Uh, so for example, um, Pinker at MIT uh, did a blog a number of years ago that was very, very, very thought provoking. And the title of it was, Math is Ruthlessly Cumulative. Uh, and you know what he said is, we, we, we focus some on sort of the basic operations in the elementary grades, but let's also acknowledge that uh, when you're doing derivatives in calculus, uh, there are things that you need to know from a 
level of automaticity that that harken back to algebra. Um, and so I think there's this universal theme throughout all the grades that we need to know what the basics are and we need to make sure that they are well done. Uh, again, borrowing from Doug Lemoff, you know, he talked about the 80-20 rule, which we also have in the book. And what he says is if you look at any domain, about 20% of the things you learn in that domain get you to about 80% level of proficiency. Uh, and the other 80% kind of takes you from that 80% level up to the top. Uh, but what he says is teachers need to be thinking about in, in all the things they're teaching kids, what really, really matters? Uh, and then uh, practice those things disproportionately. Uh, so the basics are a big theme. I think the other, uh, the other theme that's there, and you've sort of alluded to it in a couple of your questions and comments before, is um, this idea of choice, uh, this idea of uh, application, uh, those performances and those projects, those scrimmages, uh, if you will, um, I think particularly uh, as we go up the grades, there's more opportunity to give kids choice uh, for things to engage with uh, uh, in true depth. Uh, so I'm seeing more and more high schools, particularly those uh, on the sort of the personalized learning paths and uh, competency-based learning uh, that are letting kids, you know, after they've, it harkens back to ignition as well, after they've discovered the things that they're very, very excited about uh, and they're trying to sort of transition into that stoking the fire kind of phase uh, that you create internships and opportunities for kids to uh, go out in fields and work with people and do things. Uh, and so I think that that choice uh, for depth probably increases through, throughout the grades because it becomes more, more possible for us to do that as kids get a little bit older. The last section is on uh, coaching for excellence. And we, we can all imagine coaching uh, in, in sports, but what does coaching mean in education? Yeah. And as I said before, we use the term coaching for both cognitive and physical, and it's exactly what Dan Coyle did in his book. Uh, and I think essentially when we profile the most effective folks uh, in creating deliberate practice, um, it's it's very much the same for cognitive endeavors as it is with sports. Uh, again, uh, referring to John Wooden from UCLA, uh, a couple of lessons you would, uh, would take away from observing him. Uh, one, he always had incredibly highly planned practice. In fact, uh, folks would say if, if he was going to run a two-hour practice, he probably spent more than two hours preparing for it. Um, uh, for every practice, he had both team goals and individual goals. Uh, and I think his conversation of individual goals would be close to what you were talking about uh, when you're referencing sort of the personalized learning aspect here. Uh, but I think the challenge for all of us is the time. Uh, we we have teachers who have so many, uh, so many prep periods, teaching so, I mean, I remember my days in high school, you know, in any given you know, semester, I was teaching uh, freshman English, sophomore English, uh, senior English, uh, maybe an elective. Um, and so uh, John Wooden had the luxury of, you know, as at least as much practicing or teaching time as he had planning time. Uh, and I got 45 minutes out of the course of my day. Uh, so I, I think that's the challenge. And particularly, as, as you noted before, uh, getting into the personalized learning aspects, where's the time going to come from uh, for us to be able to plan uh, the individual goals within our team goals, within our highly planned out and structured practice activities? This last section also um, discusses the importance of student agency and students beginning to take on the role of, of coach, both for themselves and for others, to become more uh, metacognitive about managing their own deliberate practice? Is that 
Is that right? Um, absolutely. And and again, I think that's where the three sections sort of play together. The, the truly effective coach or teacher uh, knows how to create uh, deliberate practice, not only that is, you know, the structured in the appropriate ways, uh, but that produces results that are then given to students uh, so that they can set and track their own goals. Um, I, I had a conversation about student agency with uh, Dylan William, the noted formative assessment expert. And one of the things he said is, you know, that's an interesting area. And the first thing we need to say to people is you need to cut that into two halves. Are you talking about giving kids choice about what they're going to learn? Or are you talking about giving kids choices about how they're going to learn it? Uh, and the reason that we need to cut it into those two areas is those are uh, there's very different rights and wrongs about how to do that. Um, a lot of the initial studies coming back or uh, observational pieces off of personalized learning say that this is something that teachers really are struggling with. How do I give kids choice? yet work within the dynamic that I have a fixed set of standards uh, that I need to do. And those two things can be uh, at tension. Um, I think ultimately, though, the concept of student agency, we've got a new term but we don't necessarily have a completely new concept. Uh, you refer to metacognitive strategies. Those are all manifestations of agency. Uh, any of Bob Marzano's work that's been done about students setting goals and tracking progress towards their goals, that's student agency. Uh, and the other thing that I think is is rife with applications uh, for student agency is, is formative assessment. You know, Rick Stiggins talks about uh, the perfect assessment system. And what he says is the perfect system is one that would use assessment to inspire Inspire kids and engage them and, and have them feel the, that they have a sense of control over their learning. Uh, and I think those are all just variations on the term student agency. So I often say to audiences, student agency, the term is new, but the concept is not. Uh, we have many strategies that have existed and, and been well documented over the years uh, that can help students be more agentic over their learning. Gene, what are the implications for you and Renaissance of, of what you've learned to as a result of writing this book? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I again, when you started out, I said that, you know, I was probably a, a primed field to respond to some of this literature because we, we spoke or we uh, did so much work in the area of practice. Uh, so it, at the first pass, all of this work was a tremendous affirmation to us of where we started. It explained uh, through a new lens of understanding uh, why Accelerated Reader and Accelerated Math were so impactful. Uh, and particularly on the literacy side, um, you know, I've been reading recently a lot of the work by Mike Schmoker. And he talks about you know, the fact that literacy is just the, you know, the unrivaled thing to uh, really work on that, you know, the literacy rate of students uh, corresponds more directly with their overall performance than anything else. Uh, in other words, when we can help students be highly literate, uh, you know, demographics, poverty, all those types of things will be taken care of. So I think the challenge for us at Renaissance is uh, to expand the scope uh, of our practice solutions, uh, particularly accelerated reader, for example, which has often been uh, you know, really targeted at independent reading, how can we help teachers uh, structure more um, instructional types of reading that are more deliberate uh, in nature, which again kind of goes back to you know John Wooden saying you've got individual goals and team goals uh, where a lot of AR would have been completely individual. I also come into reading class every day as a teacher uh, of English language arts and literacy with team goals that we have to do. So how can we 
expand upon the scope of the products that we offer. And we're working in that area uh, to really uh, add some enhancements and expansions and new offerings uh, that will help uh, teachers uh, scaffold far more uh, practice that is deliberate in nature uh, than we might have been able to support them to do before. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I like to think of a Fitbit for writing. Yeah. Right. And I think in the very near future, we'll have automated writing uh, feedback systems that support the work of teachers in the classroom by providing uh, formative writing feedback uh, across the curriculum, across multiple devices that track how much you're writing, how well you're writing, what type of writing, um, and and provides useful six-trait writing feedback uh, all day, every day. I think when we have that sort of uh, virtual writing coaches, uh, we'll see kids writing more and better uh, across the curriculum. Yeah. And I think, Tom, to, to your point about that, absolutely. I mean, feedback, feedback, feedback. And, and I think the challenge for teachers is this. Um, when a kid's on a sports field, you know, they know whether the ball went in the goal or in the basket. Um, you know, in, in music, uh, you know, they're performing with a band. They, they tend to know what, what good or what right sounds like. Uh, but so many of the activities uh, that we have on the more cognitive side of education, um, kids don't necessarily know what what right uh, looks like, and they need that constant feedback to let them know uh, whether they're getting close or not. So I see that as one of the uh, greatest challenges of applying this is how do you take so many things which are far more intangible than a piece of music played well or a, a ball that goes in the goal or basket um, how do you make writing uh, more like that? How do you make math uh, more like that? Uh, and the key is feedback. Uh, and so the extent to which we can uh, build new systems that provide feedback to both the learners, uh, there's your agency piece, and to their teachers, uh, there's the master coaching piece. Um, I think that the extent that we can do that, uh, things will substantially improve in terms of performance. Gene Kearns is the Chief Academic Officer of Renaissance Learning. He's the author of a new book called Unlocking Student Talent, The New Science of Developing Expertise. Uh, Gene, uh, other than buying the book and reading it, which everybody should do, uh, any place they should go to uh, learn more? Um, well, we have a series of, of blogs and some actually some webinars coming out uh, at Renaissance. So we actually have one on this very topic later this month. Uh, so if folks want to visit our website, renaissance.com, uh, hover over the information tab, there'll be a calendar that pops up and it says webinars. We're going to do a, an initial webinar uh, that will talk about, you know, the key ideas from the book, uh, going a little bit deeper uh, in a couple of areas. And we're going to follow that one uh, with uh, one about uh, three weeks later on, okay, what would deliberate practice and reading uh, look like. So uh, visit renaissance.com, click on webinars, follow our blogs. You know, the book is uh, just out on the 15th of December. So we're just a couple weeks into this now, uh, but we'll have more and more information coming. Uh, we also will have a session for anyone attending the uh, Ed Week Leaders to Learn From uh, event in the spring. Uh, we'll have a session there on the book as well. So uh, beginning to pop up some of the conferences and we look forward to the growing dialogue. Gene, it's been a treat to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Thank you. We appreciate the opportunity. A big thank you to Gene Kearns for speaking with Tom. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. 
For more on all things and innovations in learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Caroline and Jess signing off.